Good morning. Oh, it's so good to be back. I don't know, it feels like it's been two weeks, but I guess it's only been a week and a half since we've been here, and it feels so good to be back. With that said, though, I might, um, we might need reminded of what we were working on before we left. In January, we started a process of defining for our church two things. We set out to define what our church mission statement was. What was our church's mission that we were working on? And in doing that, we kind of came to the realization that first we would need to define our values so that we could effectively define our mission. So we started that back in January, and we were supposed to last week in our February church conference um, present those to the church and vote on whether we would adopt the proposed mission and the proposed core values, and we didn't get a chance to do that. And I'm just going to start on this series anyway, looking at these proposed core values. You know, I'm really excited about adopting a mission statement and adopting a list of core values Because it's clarifying for us. It clarifies for us what we're here to do, what we're working together to achieve. But there's something difficult. Because the church is an interesting entity. We talk about mission statements and values, and these are things that businesses have. But the church isn't a business, even though we do have business that we need to conduct. We're not an organization, but we do have to be organized. Really, I think to understand why it's so important for us to have a mission statement and why it's important for us to have defined core values, I think we have to understand the nature of the church. Because I put in my notes to avoid getting on a soapbox at the end. But it's important for us to do this. Because I think over the last 40 years, maybe 50 years, the church has forgotten what we're here to do. We've really forgotten why we exist. And I say that as a general statement because I'm not condemning the ministry of our partners. I'm not condemning the ministry of us. But I'm just trying to acknowledge that we've gotten wrapped up in defining programs. We've gotten wrapped up in losing our focus on what the church actually exists for. Maybe even we haven't clearly defined for ourselves what the church is. I said in my notes, don't get on a soapbox here because... I really don't want to rant. But I'm so convicted about this. This this issue that's become more and more prevalent in churches across our country, forgetting what we're here to do, becoming distracted with programs, becoming discouraged and complacent with current affairs within the church. And while I'm speaking in general terms, I also... If you look at it and you think about it, these kinds of things, in order to address them, 
They're so subtle that we don't even see them in churches. We can't even define them. They're hard to to place a finger on. The only reason I know that they're there is because of the effects. The effects in our society, the effects in our culture. The reality is is that the church in mass is losing people between the ages of 20 and 30. They're leaving church. They're growing up in church and they're not going. In fact, there was a, a study done recently in 2020 that found that nearly 70% of students that grew up in the church in their formidable years, at least once a year, consistently were involved in a church. When they left and went away to college, 70% of them said they never attended a church. Because we've gotten distracted. And what's happening to our children is they're growing up in in an environment that isn't the church. It's a business. It's an organization. It's a misunderstanding of what the church is here to do because we've gotten distracted from our mission. It seems pointless. And I'm not trying to say I have all the answers But my heart breaks when I read these statistics. And I know there's a simple answer. The mission of our church isn't complicated. It's the great commandment to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our soul. It's the great commission to go into all of the world and to make disciples. That's the mission of the church. We've defined what that looks like for us, where we've tried to, and we've come up with this proposal that our mission is to point people to God, to pull people together, and to prepare people to be on mission. That came about as a result of evaluating our values. Today, I want to talk about one of those values. I want to talk about what it means to value prayer. How does prayer affect our mission. To do that, I don't have enough time to fully talk about prayer. So instead, we're going to turn to God's Word. We're going to find an example of prayer in the book of Colossians. If you turn there to Colossians chapter 1, we find Paul and Timothy praying for the people that they are writing to, the church in Colossae. I want to get focused this morning. We're going to define this core value. We're going to define our mission. We're going to get to work moving towards our goal that we might be a reflection of Christ's church, that He would be pleased with us. This morning we get a focus on prayer. We've said as a church that we need to value prayer. Naturally, prayer is important. It's modeled for us as a priority of the church in Acts 2 and 3, and it's prevalent throughout Scripture. We value prayer. But as we explore this, in the example of prayer given to us by Paul and Timothy, what I want to look at is how this affects our mission to point people to God, pull people together, and prepare people to be on mission. 
We'll be reading from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please read along with me as I read from God's Word. The Bible says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard, heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy." giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This prayer from Paul and Timothy for the church in Colossae, I want to acknowledge first as a model for us. In fact, verses 9 through 12 is the very prayer that I pray for the people that I've been involved in discipling. I pray, Father, I I lift up Micah to you and I ask that you would allow him to be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that he might walk in a manner worthy of you, that he may be fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in his actions and continuing to grow in his understanding for you. God, I ask that he would be strengthened with your power according to your glorious might and that that you would provide him with endurance and patience with joy. Thank you, God, for blessing me with fellowship and for qualifying Micah to share in the inheritance that you have made possible for you. Father, I lift up Seth, I lift up Jesse, Caleb, Zach. Father, I lift up Haley, Kami, Kevin, and Sam, Jackie, Chloe, Luke, Cadence, Hannah, Carly, and Ethan. Father, I lift up Lexi and Jules and Tyler and Allison. I've been so blessed to share in the lives of so many people, to be a part of this discipleship process with with all of these names that I've listed. And and I realize some of you don't know all of them, but these are people who have a special place in my heart. Not only do they have a special place in my heart, but I can say that I've been a part of discipling them for two years, some of them three years, and at least one of them for four years. This is a model prayer for us. You know, oftentimes people will ask, I know that I need to pray, but I I don't know how to pray. And the answer, of course, is that the Bible gives us not only the command to pray, but it also gives us instructions on how to pray, but it also gives us clarifications on what to pray. 
I think there's this misconception about prayer that whenever we beseech God or we come to Him asking God, do these things, that we're asking God to align His will with ours. And I think we all know that that's not the case. What we're really doing when we go to prayer is we're asking God to align our will to His. One of the best ways we can do that is not to try and pray our own words, but to Pray God's own words back to Him. I say this is a model prayer that I have prayed over the past several years for these specific people. Verses 9 through 12, at least once a week I have prayed for these people this prayer. What Paul and Timothy are praying for the church in Colossae. It is a model prayer. But there's something interesting about prayer because prayer is in fact a catalyst to pointing people to God. That first part of our mission statement, what we're proposing would be our mission statement. It is a catalyst to pointing people to God. I want to hit the ground running this morning by talking about how prayer is a catalyst to pointing people to God. And here alone, I think the context of the book of Colossians would be sufficient in explaining that for us. If you're not familiar, what's really interesting about this book is Paul and Timothy are writing to a people that they don't know. The church in Colossae, they're strangers to Paul and Timothy. They don't know them. They're writing to them. Because they are sharing in the inheritance. But how did this happen? The context here provides us so much insight on the effectiveness of prayer. Because what had happened was, if you look, remember back in Acts, Paul has gone on several missionary journeys. He invested a lot of time in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there was one man who's named, I think it's in verse 7, but you can fact check me if you have your Bible. This man, Epaphras. Is it verse 4 or verse 7? Yes. I was right. It's verse 7. Okay. Epaphras was part of the ministry there in Ephesus. And for whatever reason, he had to leave. He went to Colossae. And when he went there, there wasn't a church. So from the overflow of his life, what he had learned from Paul's ministry in Ephesus through the development of the church there, from the elders there, Epaphras is actually the one responsible for planting the church in Colossae. So Epaphras is the only link that knows Paul, knows Timothy, and knows the church in Colossae. He's connected them. Because Paul prayfully poured in and discipled the people in the church in Ephesus. There's an effect. If you look in verse 6, it says... This good news, going back to verse 5 actually, this good news, the gospel, it's come indeed to the whole world and there's a result of it coming. There's bearing fruit, there's increasing, there's progress as it does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. This is what's so important for us, I think, to wrap our minds around as we consider how prayer points people to God. Context alone 
is enough to prove that point. But through the ministry of the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae was formed so that Paul could pray for these people. Epaphras, faithfully discipled in the church of Ephesus, was equipped enough when whatever called him to Colossae called him there that a new church was able to be formed. I wonder, could we all say that? Could we say that the ministry of Denver Street is so effective that a person who comes to this church and is discipled at this church, through this church, through Jesus, that if they went to a part of the world where there was no church, that they would be so mature in Christ that they would be able to form another church? This was the model of the early church, right? I want to look, though, at Paul's attitude. Because I think it would be so possible, and I think really natural, if we think about what had just happened, that Paul was successful in planting a church, which is work on its own. But then when he leaves, he's in probably in Rome in prison because this was written the same time as the other uh, prison epistles because it was carried by the same anyways that's more context and it doesn't matter for what we're talking about this morning but if you're interesting from chapter four we know Tychicus was carrying these letters so we know that it was probably during Paul's Roman imprisonment that he wrote this but anyways when he hears from Epaphras that a church had been formed in Colossae He doesn't attribute the success to himself. In verse 3, he says, we always thank God. We always thank God. Everything that we've read, he is thanking God for the product that has resulted there. I think this is the foundation of pointing people to God. When we look at Paul's attitude and we realize that Paul in no way attributed this success to himself, he thanked God for growth, not only in the church in Ephesus, but in the church in Colossae. When we talk about evangelism, there's a lot of phrases that we use that really are not, they're they're bogus phrases because they create a misconception that shouldn't be there. We say winning souls as if we have any part to play in it. That's not evangelism. That's apologetics. Ultimately, the only thing that can call an unsaved person to God is God's own grace, His irresistible grace. There's no convincing argument that we can prepare or present that will convince people to accept the free gift that He's given them because ultimately that free gift requires them to acknowledge their own imperfection. Look down at verse, I think, 13 and 14 at what salvation really is. A deliverance from the domain of darkness a transference to the kingdom of his beloved son, redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. Paul thanks God 
because he realizes there's nothing that he did to bring these people to a saving faith. Prayer is essential to pointing people to God because there's nothing that we can do except be obedient to what God's telling us to do that will see people become saved. It requires God's grace. And yeah, it even requires a presentation of God's grace. But it's only through God's grace that we see people saved. We're not soul winning. We're being obedient. That's what brings people to a saving faith. The reality is there is hardship in this domain of darkness. It's revealed clearly in our lives that there is a need, that there is emptiness and sorrow and brokenness that exists as a result of wretchedness. But we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the transference to a kingdom of God's beloved Son, that we can thank Him for not only our salvation, but the salvation of many others. Prayer is the essential catalyst to pointing people to God, and it's only through prayer and through obedience that we are at all even participants in this process. I say that considering this relationship that the church has. I want to go back now to Epaphras, this relationship that Paul and Epaphras have in the church in Colossae, because there's something incredible, I think, in the fact that Epaphras was the one who planted the church here. As far as I know, the Bible doesn't have much to say about Epaphras other than what we find in in Colossians. So Epaphras, remember, he's the man who was a member of the church in Ephesus, who went and ultimately formed the church in Colossians. We don't know much about him. We don't know if he was, you know, we call them lay members, if he was, um, ended up being sent to Colossae as a church planter. We really don't know what caused him to go there, but I think it's just as likely that he was called away for business or for work or for what natural things, and it was just a product of his faithfulness to God that a church was formed because he lived a life of obedience. And in this, Paul refers to Epaphras as a fellow servant. The second part of our mission statement is that we would pull people together. Look at what the Bible says here. That since Paul and Timothy heard of the faith in the church in Colossae, the love that they had for the saints, that they offered their prayers for them, welcoming them in to this community of believers. Partners or um, fellow heirs who had a share in the inheritance of all of the saints in the light. In verse 7, Paul refers to Epaphras as a fellow servant. what we find in pulling people together, prayer has a role in the associational work of churches. 
Think about what's happening here. Not just historical letters, but Paul was a church planter from the church in Jerusalem. He was sent out by the church in Jerusalem for the purpose of forming churches, for evangelizing, for proclaiming the word so that God's grace could change people's lives. He went to Ephesus and he invested a lot of time there and a church was formed. He went on three missionary journeys. He winds up in Rome in prison. And now he's writing to the baby church, the granddaughter church of the church in Ephesus. And these churches are all working together to accomplish something. To accomplish this mission. When we understand the function of the church, and and we really have a perspective of what the church actually is, I think I'm getting stuck in my notes, so I want to back away for a second and follow me. I said that there is a problem in the church because we have forgotten what we are here to do. We've gotten distracted with programs and everything else. And defining our mission statement, the purpose of defining our mission statement is to refocus us, recalibrate us, so that we can be effective in doing what we were put here to do. I was talking with my grandma on the phone the other day, and um, I asked her, you know, my grandma turns her notifications off, so she really rarely answers her phone. So I have to answer it whenever she calls me because she doesn't like being buzzed. Because that's foreign to her because she didn't grow up when I grew up. And I was joking, uh, you know, I think it would be nice to go back when I didn't have emails and phone calls and text messages constantly buzzing in my pocket. And if you've ever texted me, you know it probably takes three to four hours for me to respond most of the time because I'm actually in the habit of just ignoring the buzzes. All the buzzes. So I'm sorry. But but I said I'd like to go back, and I said, actually, no, I know that I shouldn't go back because God put me here for a reason. Just like he put this church here for a reason. He's called this assembly together for a reason and for a purpose. And if we're going to be effective in obedience to that purpose, it requires us to get on board with the mission that the Bible gives us. And, and, and here's what I'm saying when we're pulled together, when we have this perspective of association, of what these churches are doing with one another. The church in Jerusalem sent a missionary to Ephesus, and a church was formed. And that church wasn't just dependent on the church in Jerusalem, but it became independent so that it could cooperate with the church in Jerusalem, so that it could even plant another church in Colossae. The effectiveness of this ministry, that, that and simple, cut out the fat. This is so simple. Obedience to God's word has produced incredible results. So the function of the church, not just the churches, but are these independent individuals, these unique believers who have been called together to do something. Because here's the perspective we have to have about the church. When we're saved, we are drafted into God's army. 
drafted into God's army. Because there is a spiritual war that is taking place. There's real evil taking place. There is an enemy and an oppressor whose sole purpose is to seek people out, to see them destroyed, to see them killed, to steal. And we're part of the opposition. The church then is an outpost. It's a place where we come not just for training, but for encouragement when we need it. It's a place where we come not just for encouragement and training, but healing when we come back wounded. It's where we get our marching orders. It's an association of believers who are accomplishing a task that is bigger than any one of them ever could. I said that Paul was humble in admitting that he thanks God for the progress in the church in Colossae. And I think we have to realize that our cooperation in this work requires the whole assembly to be involved. That we have to cooperate with one another. That disciplers have to work together to raise people up to accomplish this task. Church is not just for our spiritual fulfillment, but it is to fulfill a greater purpose. Ultimately, every believer should be receiving their spiritual fulfillment from the Word. On their own. At home. Every day, maybe even multiple times a day, not at church. At church, we have work to do. Church, we have business to attend to, even though we're not a business. At church, we're working together for something. It's our outpost for the mission that has been given to us by God. Because none of us can accomplish what we have been set here to do on our own. Ultimately, the disciples prayer at the end of this passage, the, the, the disciples prayer verses 9 through 14 points us even more towards the necessity that we have for people in our lives. We look at how Paul is praying over these strangers. It points us towards the fulfillment of the Great Commission and its purpose. Because what we've been put here to do is to be prepared to live on mission. To accomplish this purpose. You see, prayer not only points people to God and is the catalyst for all things evangelism, but prayer also pulls people together. And thirdly, prayer is what prepares us to live on mission. We're not discipled so that we can get puffed up heads. We don't study the Bible so that we can gain knowledge. We study the Bible so that we can be transformed. Verses 13 and 14, very clear. In salvation, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God. I think some of us have forgotten what that's actually saying. 
Do we remember what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of darkness? I'm not saying that the past should loom over our heads, but if we really remembered what it's like to live a life wrapped up in sin, don't you think we'd be a lot more passionate, a lot more motivated to accomplish what we've been set here to do? Don't you think we'd be a lot more focused? Man, I hate this. When I think about the church and I, I, I see her mission and I see her purpose, and I hear from people who have been hurt by the church, who are tired of sitting around with people that care more about talking about morals than they do living a life on mission. I went to my barber shop um, Saturday. I've told you before, it's the only place in town that I can go to to interact with people, so I go once a week. Anyways, so I was at my barber shop yesterday, and I was talking with this guy, and it's so obvious he'd been hurt by the church. He said, oh yeah, I'm a member here, but I haven't attended in years except Mother's Day and Christmas. And as I'm talking to this guy, we actually ended up having a very stirring conversation. I was very excited. We talked about some Baptist history, uh, going all the way back to the Reformation, talked about uh, the differences between the ABA and the BMA and what caused that division back in the 50s. We talked about... um, couple of doctrinal things. I told him that I wouldn't talk about the Trinity with him because I still don't understand it. And then what else did we talk about? Salvation. What it means for salvation to be through faith alone. It was the best conversation I had at the barbershop. I wanted to stick around, and, but I, I knew I had to go. But in all of these things, you know, I, I, I heard this gentleman I might even call him pretty well-versed in the Bible. But he wasn't a member of a church. He wasn't contributing to anything because he was frustrated. And we talked a little bit more, and it came out why he wasn't a member of the church, that he had been hurt. Something had been said, probably not communicated well. He was offended. And I could tell it had been years and this was still an open wound. As he was talking about it, I could tell it still affected him. The church had been more focused on talking about what they should be doing than actually doing it. Their priorities have been on being so rigid and being so dogmatic that they hadn't actually done what they were set there to accomplish. And as a result, a well-versed, well-educated Christian who should be living on mission isn't able to. I think it's jumping the gun to blame that on the church because it's ultimately his fault too. But 
Isn't that a sad picture? And it's common. It's a common picture. I think it's pretty easy to find people that have been hurt to hurt by the church. In fact, it's kind of hard to find someone that's never heard the story about Jesus, at least in part, even if they didn't understand it completely. It's kind of hard to find someone completely just brand new to this altogether. It's easy to find someone that's been hurt by the church, though. The church is supposed to be a place of healing At least it is whenever we're functioning effectively, when we're focused, when we have a mission, when we have something to measure ourselves against. I think the reason that we get off, and again, I don't have all the answers, but I I think the reason that it's so easy to get off on this is people don't take the time to actually look at where we get all the answers. And so they're extra, extra cautious. And they're extra, extra careful. And in their ignorance, they add things to the Bible that aren't there. They add things to the Bible that aren't there. They're afraid to act. And in their ignorance, they disobey what is there. Prayer. Pointing these people so that they might be able to live on mission. Asking for God's knowledge and asking for His will. Again, aligning themselves to His will. And that comes with a purpose if you look at that. The reason that in verse 9 it says that we're asking for God's will is that when we pray, that we're adopting this perspective... It says that it affects our spiritual wisdom, the knowledge of spiritual things, our experience with spiritual things. It affects, secondly, our understanding, not just our head knowledge, not just our experiential knowledge, but our ability to interact with the world. In providing for these things, we're able to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. That's in verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. Are we bearing fruit? Are we discipling someone? Are they bearing fruit? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, knowledge is important because that actual knowledge protects us. Not our ignorance adding things because we haven't taken the time to actually read God's word, but we've understood it at least in part, and so we've provided explanations that come from our own head, which, by the way, is not God's, and it's not the Holy Spirit. It's arrogance. Um, That was harsh, but it's true. Knowledge of God is important. It protects us. It prevents us from getting distracted by non-issues. It protects us from our ignorance. Thirdly, though, Having this spiritual wisdom and this understanding provides for us a strength with all power. God's power. Providing endurance. The ability to face affliction. Patience. The ability to be consistent even when we don't see results. And joy. The power of God to give us joy where the world may not see any.
I wonder, we say as a church that we value prayer. And I've asked for the last several weeks that we would be in prayer considering what that means for us. What does it mean that we value prayer? The model that we have from Paul and Timothy writing to the church in Colossae is that that prayer not only pointed people to God, that it pulled people together, also though that it prepares people to live on mission. If we valued prayer, and we say that we do, what does it mean that we would live on mission? That we would actually take the time to be convicted Actually take the time to consider what it means that we've been transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. That we would be reliant on the grace of God to see more people saved. That we would, in doing these things, get back to a simple model of one-on-one discipleship. Who are you discipling? Right now. Every Christian's called to this ministry. There's no room for getting out of it. It doesn't matter where you're at in life, you are called to this ministry of discipling somebody else, sharing your life with them, praying this model prayer for them. Who are you discipling? Would you commit to praying this prayer?